Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 38. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach down in front of you and find a Bible like this, um, and it will be on page 814. And I will read the, the passage in just a second, um, but that's what we're going to be reading. And, and I can say this with full confidence, if you don't have a Bible um, and you would benefit from having one, which I think you would whether you know it or not, um, you are welcome to take this Bible home and use it. Make it your own. Um, it is yours. Uh, it, we are happy as a church to provide God's word to you if you don't have one. It is actually brand new. It's never going to be newer than it is right now. Um, so take it and, and use it. We would be happy to do that. Um, but we're going to be reading from page 814 in just a minute. But we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we come to this section, we're coming to a transition um, in this Gospel. And so we're coming to the end of, of a section that runs from chapter 8 and 9, and, and we're transitioning into chapter 10. And, and what we're going to see in chapter 10 is that, that we have a second major discourse of Jesus. And, and in the second discourse, he's going to focus specifically on the role of his disciples. These, these men have been following him for a while, and he's going to commission them in chapter 10. And chapter 10 is going to be this whole discourse on what they can expect, on what they're to do as they go and represent him and, and serve in his extension of his ministry. And what our four-verse section does this morning, it's a bit of a bridge between the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. And it's going to bridge these two sections specifically by introducing the role of the disciples in the ministry of Jesus. And so if, you just, if you've been with us, just think about the entirety of the ministry of Jesus in this gospel thus far. I mean, all the, all the way up until where we are in chapter 9, the entirety of the ministry of Jesus has consisted in Jesus teaching and Jesus performing miracles. So, so Jesus has been the one carrying out this ministry of words and works. Okay, so, so he's preaching a message, he's using his words, he's teaching, but he's also healing and performing miracles. It's a ministry of words and works, and it's been specifically and solely Jesus. He's been the one doing it. The disciples have been there from the beginning. He calls them to follow him, but Jesus has been the one carrying out the ministry. And then last week, what we saw is in verses 18 through 34, these reports of Jesus and the fame of Jesus and his reputation is spreading throughout the entire region, throughout the entire district. The ministry, what he's doing, it's gaining momentum. You can't do the things that Jesus was doing and stay, stay uh, covered or unknown for, for very long. So, so people are starting to notice and more people are coming to him and, and his reputation is spreading and so, so that's happening, while at the same time what we saw last week is opposition is rising. The Pharisees are coming, and, and this opposition is going to continue rising for the, the rest of his ministry, and indeed the rest of his earthly life. And all that leads up to verse, the four verses we're going to look at today, which is a summary of what's happened thus far in the ministry, but also teaching, bridging to the teaching of chapter 10. Because these disciples, as he, he can't do it on his own, so he's going to commission these disciples. And we're going to see... That, that what he's doing now, he's preparing them, he's laying the groundwork for sending them out because it's time for them to, to, get their, 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 to grow their wings, um, as it were. He's going to give them authority and commission them as his messengers. And, and so that, that's what's coming in chapter 10, which Lord willing we'll look at next week. But today, before we get to chapter 10, what we're going to see is that th this call of the disciples is driven by, motiva motivated by, 
um, this, this compassion of Jesus. So, so the call of the disciple is driven by the compassion of the king. So maybe that's a sentence that'll help you understand what, what's being said today. That the call of the disciple, what the disciples to do is driven by the compassion of the king. And, and so, so that's, that's the one sentence um, thesis maybe for this, this passage. So let's, let me read the four verses. I'll pray for us and then we'll just work through um, the verses together. But Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, um, we read these words. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, disciples, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, as we read this, we pray for grace to trust you more. We we pray that as we behold your heart on display here and the the commissioning of your followers, we pray that you would give us a heart of compassion, but also a heart for those that are in need. And so conform us into the image of Christ, our good shepherd. In his name I pray, amen. So so there's three points. I know there's four verses. I, I couldn't get four points for four verses, but we've got three points for four verses, okay? So, so we're gonna work through these. Um, and here's the outline. We'll see first, verse 35, there's a summary statement. And then secondly, verse 36, a compassionate heart. So, so we'll see the heart of Jesus on display there. And then the last two verses, we, we'll see what compassionate hearts look like in action. So, so what is Jesus calling his disciples to? So we see compassion in action, verses 37, 38. So start there, verse 35, a summary statement. So, so again, we're in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, but I want you to, to hold your place there and turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Because in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, I want to I read the sentence that Matthew records in chapter 4, verse 23. So it's on page 809, just p- turn back a few pages. But listen to what Matthew writes in chapter 4, verse 23. And he, I mean, talking about Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Okay, so again, Matthew 4, 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Okay, that's Matthew 4, 23. Now, fast forward, flip forward to Matthew 9, verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, okay, different wording, similar idea, but notice what he's doing, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, so again, Matthew, this is a summary statement of what Jesus is doing. He's going throughout Galilee, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. That that was Matthew's summary in chapter 4. And and that summary statement preceded what came in chapters 5, 6, and 7, which was the first discourse. So he's saying, hey, here's here's all that Jesus is doing. Here's his ministry. Now I'm going to tell you a specific uh, discourse, a specific teaching that Jesus taught his disciples. And that's what Matthew does in chapter five, six, and seven. Well, now chapters eight and nine, he's recording what he's been doing. And as a summary statement, he says, hey, here, just in case you forgot, here's what Jesus' ministry consists of. 
He's going throughout everywhere, teaching, proclaiming, healing. That's what he's doing. Now, get ready. Here's a second discourse coming. So it's functioning. I, it's just helpful for me to recognize these are markers that Matthew is setting for us to know. Oh, here's something else coming. Here's, we should remember that. Oh, last time he said that, and then he told us he went, in, went into this discourse. Okay, now he's telling us this. He's going to jump into a discourse. And so that's what he's doing. He's offering a summary. What Jesus has done did not change from Matthew 4 to chapter from Matthew chapter 4 to chapter 9. This is, this is what his ministry consists of. And so Matthew is just re- recounting the summary. He's going throughout all the, cities, all the cities and all the villages. And his ministry is, it's a three-pronged ministry, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. That's what he does. That's his ministry. That's his, his Monday ministry, his Tuesday ministry, his Wednesday ministry, his Thursday ministry, his Friday ministry, his Saturday ministry, his Sunday ministry. That's his January ministry, his February ministry, his March. Keep going. I'm not going to keep going. But that's the point. That's what he's doing day after day after day. It's a ministry of teaching and proclaiming and a ministry of healing, a words and works. And we've talked about this. These go together. You can't say, well, I just like the words of Jesus, but I don't believe the miracles. No, they go together. They validate one another and they, they have to be understood together, working, in, in, working together. And so Matthew just wants us to recognize he's constantly doing this. He's constantly ministering. He's constantly pouring himself out for the sake of others. One commentator said that Jesus' ministry was completely comprehensive and that Jesus came for every person, right? There's a totality here. This is universal nature of his ministry. Everyone who comes in contact with him, everyone who comes in with a need or want, he's, he's meeting those needs. And so... We've seen in chapters 8, so when he says this is what Jesus was doing, it's filled in with, with these, these examples that we've read in chapters 8 and 9, where, where we saw diseases and illnesses of individuals coming up and Jesus casting out demons or, or healing blind people or healing the paralytic. And so Jesus is ministering to individuals in all of these cases. And, and every single instance when he heals or cures, there's an individual's life who is totally transformed. I mean, can you imagine hundreds of thousands of people who interact with this one man and they're totally changed forever? Their lives are are restored. And Jesus does this time after time after time. People would travel from all over, all over the region, all over the the area, and they'd line up I mean, we have accounts where there, there, there's lines outside the door of the house he's in, and they're waiting, and they're waiting and waiting. Last night, we were at a restaurant, and it was like people were getting grumpy because they had to wait like 30 minutes. Like, well, we want to eat now. Well, these people, they, they travel hours, and they just wait. They're like, I'm not leaving until I meet Jesus. And they're all over. They're coming. And wave after wave of needy, broken, helpless person, they find Jesus, and when they meet Jesus, they find compassion. Over and over and over. That, that's, just, that's Jesus. He's a compassionate king. And so he's doing, this is what he's doing, which leads to verse 36. What, what, what is happening here? Look at verse 36, the compassionate heart. Here's the heart of Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I mean, they're, they're, it's a short verse, but there's, there's a lot there. I mean, first, I, I just I want to confess how convicting it is simply to recognize the reality that Jesus never tired of seeing the crowds. I mean, 
it says he saw the crowds and had compassion for them. The harassed and helpless crowds, these needy people, they were met with compassion. Now, of course, Jesus got tired. He was human. He got tired. That's part of being human. But what I want you to see is that he was never tired of the helpless and needy people who came to him over and over and over. And, and I say that's convicting because, right, that's not me. I am not compassionate through and through. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I know that maybe, that, maybe, that, maybe you don't have a category for that. I'm not. And I don't think you are either, through and through. I mean, if you have small children, just think about it. Especially if you have more than one small child. I mean, children constantly need their parents. And there's question after question. Maybe you wake up, you're like, I'm going to bless the, my children today. I'm going to love them. I'm going to be the God-given parent that I am supposed to be. And so 9 a.m. they come. Hey, what's for breakfast? Hey, sweetie, we're going to wait till 9.30 to eat breakfast. You go read a book or go clean your room. And you're so patient. And then about 9.03, what's for breakfast? I want cereal. I want pancakes. I want, I want. No, no, I said 9.30, sweetie, please go, please go back. 9.04, I'm hungry. I want to eat now. And, and so your compassion, your heart that you're so intent on showing to these precious children, right? It wears thin. And you're like, get out of here. We're not eating lunch if you come in here again. Amen. Right? So, so, so we, want, we want to be compassionate and we desire to be compassionate. But when we're bombarded over and over, we're like, I can't do this anymore. And it's not just children. I mean, think about driving through Hampton. There are people on corners all throughout our city. And maybe you're like, oh, God wants me to bless this person. I'm going to give them food. No, I'm, I'm going to give them some spare change. And then the next corner, I just helped somebody. I just gave them my I can't do it again. The next day, I can't do it. And so the more that you interact or encounter, it's like, I can't do this. I mean, just for us as pastors, and I, I'm going to speak for Will here. He can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but numerous individuals call our church for help with light or water bills. I mean, week after week. Some, sometimes there, there's weeks between, but recently it, it seems like it's every week multiple people are like, hey, I can't pay this $200 water bill. We need help. And, and, and I'm often like, okay, let, let's set up a time. But then the next day, someone else, like, I'm busy. I can't set aside time to meet with this person. And so we'll, I'll be sitting, it happened this week on Monday. There's a lady asking for help and I was convicted. I'm like, I'm not compassionate. I just want you to get out of this office as fast as possible because I have better things to do. And then I'm studying this text for this week and I'm like, God, <laughs> this, is, this is sovereignty. God is too kind to let me go on in my lack of compassion. And so I read this, I'm like, I this isn't me, but this is Jesus. It's not just a couple calls a week. This is every day he's going town to town and people are coming. He's saying, yes, come on. I'll meet your needs. I'll heal you. I'll give you what you need. And so, so it's convicting. Jesus is compassionate. And so it's good just to be reminded, I'm not Jesus and neither are you. And praise him for that. And so here's Jesus. He's been preaching, proclaiming, healing every disease and every affliction. He hasn't had a break and he's continuing to see this people and continually move to compassion, which is good news for needy people like us. He is compassionate. That's his heart. But notice also from verse 36, not only does it say his compassion, but Matthew gives the reason or the ground for that compassion. For they were harassed and helpless. Jesus saw the crowds had compassion because, Matthew says, the reason they were harassed 
and helpless. They were needy people. He, then he uses a, an analogy or a metaphor. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, now that, that metaphor is, is lost on us, but, but it would have been well received. They would have known exactly what it meant to be harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I mean, sheep, they, they had to be protected from, from predators. So that's part of the shepherd's job. But, but sheep don't even know where they're supposed to eat. And they'll, eat, they'll kill themselves eating stuff they're not supposed to. If someone's not leading them day by day saying, hey, here's the green pastures, eat here. Or here's a fence, don't go out of here. So, so they would have known what a foolish creature a sheep was. And so when Jesus sees a harassed and helpless people, he's moved to compassion because they need a leader. And so he sees them and he's deeply moved. Because of this situation, he sees these helpless and harassed Israelites and he's emotionally affected. And in this crowd, in this setting, Jesus sees the mission field. He sees the purpose he came. They are sheep without a shepherd. And so this, this, this metaphor here, where as readers of the Gospels, we know where the life of Jesus is leading. We know like John chapter 10 that Jesus would identify himself as the good shepherd. And we know where his life is going, that he's going to lay down his life on the cross and be buried and, and raised again. We recognize this image of sheep and shepherd in light of the gospel, which is true. Right? That, that is a right understanding of this, of this illustration or analogy or metaphor here. Certainly at work, he's the good shepherd. However, this imagery of sheep without a shepherd, it's common in the Old Testament before Jesus steps on the scene. And so as Jesus is, is talking to his disciples and, and he's saying, look at the needy sheep without a shepherd, they would have other categories of thinking because they would have had an Old Testament grounding of what, it, what that was, was about. Because this imagery of sheep and shepherd was, was very common specifically as it related to God's people in the context of their leaders, their human leaders, especially when it was negligent. For example, you, you don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel chapter 34, one of those powerful chapters condemning the failure of Israel's leaders. So, so Ezekiel chapter 34, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10. And, and you can just listen. Listen to Ezekiel the prophet. This is Old Testament before Jesus comes. But listen to the way that the Lord, through Ezekiel, talks about what's happening among his people. So he says, there's a verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel talking. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, the shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should, you, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Yet you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak have not been strengthened. The sick have not been healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They're only people who are supposed to be shepherds. There was no shepherd, he said. So they're scattered. And they became food for all the wild beasts. These are, these are his people. These are the Israelites he's talking about. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none 
to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. The mouths of the shepherds. I'm going to rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Then verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Does that give context here to what Jesus is saying? They're sheep without a shepherd, but it's okay because I'm here. I'm here. I'm here for my sheep who have been neglected. Jesus on the scene in Israel, as he's looking around, it's really similar to what happened in Ezekiel's day. He looks out and he sees neglected, harassed, and helpless sheep. And in this picture, we see the depths of the heart of Christ. He's come as the faithful shepherd who's coming to seek and save that which was lost, to mend and heal that which was broken. He's come to find them, to lead them, to nourish them, to heal them, to die for them. He is the shepherd of Israel. And so this Ezekiel 34 context helps us understand when Jesus says this, his disciples are like, okay, we know who he is. We, we get a little better picture of, of who this man is we're following. Another passage of Old Testament that, that would have formed this or, or helped inform this understanding would be Numbers chapter 27, which is, which is where in, in the, the book of Numbers, there's this transition from Moses to Joshua. So the Old Testament, Moses, this great leader, led them out of the, out of the land of, of slavery and, and led them just to the brink of the promised land. But Moses can't go in. Right? He disobeys the Lord. The Lord says, sorry, you, you, can, you can see it with your eyes, but you're not going in. Right? That's Moses' consequence. And then Moses says... You need to appoint a man. This is Numbers chapter 27, verse, 30, 30, verse 16. He says, let, let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation who's going to go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So Moses says, Lord, I know I can't go in, but they need a shepherd, so appoint someone. And then it says, the Lord says, take Joshua. Take Joshua, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. He's going to be the shepherd and so, so there we have the idea of God's people needing a shepherd. And, and in this sense, I, I think Joshua is a type of Christ because he does lead them well. And he accomplishes God's purposes in, in taking over the promised land. But he's not the true shepherd. God provided Joshua for them. But, but here in Matthew chapter 9, we see that there's a greater one than Joshua who's there to seek and lead and save the sheep. And so Jesus and we'll see this as the opposition of the Pharisees continues to rise. The situation in Jesus' day is that those responsible, those charged with leading God's people, the experts in the law, the Pharisees and the scribes were failing miserably. Those charged with leading God's people, shepherding Israel were, were not doing so. In fact, Jesus, some of his most harsh words were for those religious leaders because they were neglecting their God-given responsibility. And we'll see more of this in Matthew chapter 23. There's these woes that Jesus issues to the religious leaders of the day. And so that's the setting here as Jesus sees these sheep and says they're like sheep without a shepherd. It's because they are, because God's leaders were not doing what they were called to do. And so he's moved. He has compassion on them. 
And in fact, that word compassion, right? We have one English word for the Greek word, but the, the Greek word there that, that's trying to be translated or conveyed, it's not easily translated with just one word. In fact, one commentator says it's a strongly emotional Greek verb. It's actually a movement in the stomach. It's compassion. It's a warm, compassionate response to need. So, so compassion and pity and sympathy, all these words convey part of the meaning but, but one commentator says that the actual translation, this one word should be translated, his heart went out. Like it's from his, his inner being that he's moved towards them. He starts going out to them. I, I, I feel for them. I have pity on them. This, this response of Jesus is a deep gut response. He's moved because he sees the people in need. And what's important for us to recognize here is that every other instance in Matthew when this verb compassion is used in relation to Jesus, it's followed by action. So it's not like he just sees it, he has compassion, then he, he continues on his way. No, every time this verb occurs, compassion is then, it, it moves him. He does something in response to this, this feeling. So in chapter 14, verse 14, he's going to see the crowds, he's going to have compassion on them and heal them. Or in chapter 15, the, the, the feeding of the 4,000 is preceded by Jesus seeing them and having compassion on them. He says, I, I, I'm moved, and so I'm going to meet their needs. I'm going to actually multiply this food and, and meet their needs. In chapter 20, verse 34, the, the, the same verb is translated pity. And so there's these two blind men in chapter 20 that he heals. And it says, in pity, he's moved and, and he heals them. And so Jesus, this compassion is compassion that moves towards action which is what we see happening in Matthew chapter 9. He sees the crowds, he has compassion on them, and then he turns to his disciples and addresses them. So look there at our last point, compassion in action. So instead of, at the very point, going out and beginning to heal and remedy every disease and illness, so he sees them, there's a need, there's a need, he wants to meet the need, he's moved with compassion. Instead of him saying, okay guys, stay here, I'm going. Instead, he turns to his disciples and notice what he says in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and then switches the metaphors. We're not, we're not in sheep and shepherds anymore. He's no longer viewing these people as helpless and harassed sheep. Now he recognizes them as fields to be harvested. As a whole field that's in need of action. These people, as Jesus looks around and sees them, drives him to call his disciples to action. I don't know if you had the, the feeling of overwhelming need, but, but, but sometimes we, we experience this overwhelming need being met with underwhelming supply. Do you know what that feels like? I mean, in a couple weeks, if you don't know what that feels like, come to my backyard because there'll be leaves everywhere and one blower isn't enough. It's not. It's, it's overwhelming. I can look out and say, this is going to take forever. Right? So, so there's Jesus in a much more significant, serious manner sees these people and recognizes, look at the harvest. I'm one man. And I'm looking out and I'm seeing, oh God, look at them. And of course, Jesus could have met every need without any help from anyone. But he is training his disciples to recognize there is a field of harvest and it's ripe. And men, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you out. The, the harvest is ready. The labors are for you. Therefore, instead of saying, hey guys, time to go. He says first, pray. 
He doesn't, he doesn't lack his divine nature. There's nothing that he's like, I can't meet this. But, but he recognizes this is a field. I don't lack the ability to meet this need, but I, what I lack is co-laborers. And so these people, as he sees them, they drive him to call his disciples to action. I mean, like I said, Jesus has been the one carrying out his ministry thus far. Everyone else has been following, listening, learning. Maybe, maybe in a size they're asking, now, now you said this, what do you mean about this? Or, or tell us about this, Jesus. But, but it's been Jesus doing it all at the, up to this point. But Jesus is now transitioning, preparing to send them out. He's beginning to prepare, prepare his disciples for what's coming in chapter 10. So, so now he's beginning to shift their mindset from, from that of a spectator to actually getting their hands dirty, to becoming a participant in what's going on. The needy people all around are evidence of a ripeness of harvest. I mean, people are coming to Jesus, recognizing their need for him. His, his fame is growing, his reputation is growing, and, and people want to be healed by him. And they want to hear what he has to say. They, they think, we've never heard anyone talk like this. This man has authority unlike any scribe we've ever listened to. And so they're coming and listening. They want to know, what is this kingdom they're talking about? And Jesus says, the harvest is ripe. Look around you. Look at these people, in image bearers, loved by my father, in need of a shepherd, in need of care. And as plentiful as the harvest is, the workers are few. Which maybe that's just she's being humble because let's be honest, it's a massive understatement. The workers aren't few, the workers are one. And maybe you could throw John the Baptist in as, as a, a forerunner, but, but Jesus is the one. So he says, the workers are few. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for the situation. He wants them to recognize the underwhelming labor force and the overwhelming harvest that's surrounding them, that's coming to them. And so what Jesus is doing is inviting his disciples into the compassion he feels. Remember, the motivation for this action is the compassionate heart of Jesus. He wants his disciples not just to, hey, help me get the job done. I want to get some sleep at night. So, so you guys just, just deal with some of these for me. That's, that's not why he wants them to join him. He wants them to join the team in order to extend the, recipient, the re- reception of God's compassion through the ministry of Jesus. He wants people to know that their, their creator is compassionate and has made a way for them to be part of, of his kingdom and his people and to know him. And compassionate and compassionless disciples don't serve as extensions of the good shepherd's ministry. They just don't. Compassion moves the good shepherd and compassionless disciples are not extensions of the good shepherd's ministry. If you have ministry without compassion, you're not Christ-like ministering. He is a compassionate king. And this whole, this whole motivation and call to action is moved by his heart as he sees the need. And so these disciples, they, they'd been told, remember when he first called them? I'm going to make you fishers of men. Come follow me. Well, well now it's, it's time for the rubber to meet the road. It's time to get busy. But notice what compassion action doesn't look like right here. He doesn't say, hey, the harvest is, is plentiful, the labor is free. So, so come on, guys, we're going out. Come on. He'll get there shortly in chapter 10. But first, notice what compassion in action looks like. Harvest is plentiful, laborers are full. Therefore, what are they to do? Pray earnestly. Don't go. 
Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first call isn't go. The first action, the, the, the first application, the first imperative is, is praying earnestly. The first act of showing compassion to these shepherdless people is praying. I mean, we don't have category for that. We see a need like, okay, how can I meet it? Especially husbands, right? Our wife comes with a problem. Well, how can I fix it? Right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, guys, go fix the problem. He says, pray. That is actually how you fix the problem. The solution is concerted prayer. One, t- one commentator commented, when the going gets tough, the tough get on their knees. I mean, Jesus is saying, pray. This isn't some precursor or, or something. Yeah, you need to do this because this is how we start. This is the Bible. I'm, I'm Jesus. Just pray. No, he says, pray earnestly. There's, there's a need out there. And so prayer is the solution. Notice because prayer is to the Lord of the harvest. Did you notice that? The Lord is the sovereign over his harvest. You're praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. It's his harvest. The call is to pray to the sovereign harvest master to send out under harvesters, under the harvest master. It's his harvest. Do you realize that God cares for these people way more than these disciples ever will? It's his harvest. And Jesus is inviting them to take place in in gathering the harvest that is God's. In the face of this situation, Jesus wants his disciples to do something. The most effective, the most important, the most God-honoring thing that they could do in their time of overwhelming need is to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And the reality is that even with Jesus and these 12, as they eventually join him and then they lose one, Judas, so even Jesus with the 11, and as they grow and the following grows, even with all of them eventually ministering together and even carrying it through the book of Acts, where there's the authority of Jesus is, is expressly given to these apostles and, and they're doing deeds in the name of Jesus. So even all of that and all these people added, laboring together, even with that, the job would still be too overwhelming. The mission this proclamation of the kingdom was going to be a worldwide mission for all peoples. And this mission would always be an experience of overwhelming need and underwhelming supply. And so I can say here today that the call for the followers of Jesus is still pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest because the harvest is still plentiful, right? There's still an overwhelming need. Unless God's people would learn to go to the Lord of the harvest who never, ever, ever suffers from a supply shortage, that's the solution. There's always inexperience of overwhelming need and underwhelming supply unless we learn to go to the Lord of the harvest. Because then when we recognize he is Lord of the harvest, we're not overwhelmed. It's his harvest. And so we take part in the ingathering of the harvest. And so we pray to the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. We are simply his labors to bring in his harvest. And until the end of the age, a fitting prayer for the followers of Christ is to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers. And so that's, I just have three application points. The first application point, the need for prayer. Prayer proceeds action. I mean, our mindset, our culture is there's a need and we meet it. And that's a good impulse. But Jesus says, pause. You don't meet the need first by going. You meet the need first by praying. 
And so prayer is necessary in this gospel work, in this kingdom work, in this Christian work. We are dependent on God. That's what prayer is, expressing our dependence. Ministry without prayer is never God-honoring. It can be really flashy and really exuberant and appear to be really fruitful, but if you have ministry without prayer, it's not God-honoring. And at the end of the day, it's not actually productive. So, so we, as a church, we must grow in our prayer. We need prayer for our ministry to be fruitful. We do. I'm scared to death to think about a fruitful church that has no prayer. That can exist in this world. A church can appear to be fruitful and not be built on one step of prayer. May it never be us. May it never be us. Prayer is necessary for kingdom work. And so, so pray for workers. Internalize that, apply that however you want. Missionaries, yes. Pick a country. God, send workers. Pick a country. They all need missionaries. They all need gospel witnesses. Pray for pastors. There are areas in our country where, where there aren't faithful pastors preaching and shepherding. Pray for God to raise them. God has to do it. Being a pastor isn't a self-appointed thing. God has to raise up missionaries and pastors. I mean, pray for workers that are just Christians who work at the shipyard. Pray for God to raise up workers. We're not just in an official capacity here. All Christians are called to be workers in the harvest. And so pray for them. Maybe you have a child who has walked away from the Lord and you know where the town where they live. Pray for a church in that town to meet the needs of your child or you know they have a workplace. Pray for the Lord to raise up a coworker, a neighbor, a friend to minister to them. The harvest is plentiful, but it needs workers, so pray. You can apply that however you want. I mean, think about your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids. It's not wrong to pray, God, would you provide my son or my daughter with, with a spouse and a pastor to care for their family? Pray for workers. This isn't time limited. Pray for this church when I'm dead and gone. God, raise up a faithful pastor to come after whoever is after Nathan, whoever is after him, whoever is after him. Pray for workers. You can't run out of things to pray for when you're praying for workers. Brother, sister, the field is ripe for harvest. Pray for workers. Second point of application, the role of labor. We're going to see this more next week because the disciples are, who knows how long they're praying for this. But Jesus is going to say, okay, guys, it's time to go. You remember that prayer you were praying for the workers to go out? You're the answer to your prayer. Time to go, boys. Right? Sometimes that's how God works. But until you're moved with compassion to pray for the worker, you're never going to be willingly going as the worker. But there is a role for the harvesters. Action is required. Compassion, oh, I see the needs. Oh gosh, our, our church is so full of young kids and I love it and I feel so sorry for those moms. Unless you're moved to say, how can I help? Maybe I can serve in the nursery. Shameless plug. But compassion without action isn't compassion. Action is required. And so the Lord uses laborers for his mission and his ministry. And so we have a role to play, church. 
Labor is required. If you think that your, your church participation is, 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 is limited, like just this list of stuff you have, like, oh yeah, I'm a member of that church. Just like I, I, I'm, a, uh, I'm at Old Point National Bank and I'm part of this HOA and I'm part of this and that. that that's not how, how the church, how life in the church fits. You are called to labor. That's, that's your life's goal, to labor in the harvest. God has placed you where you are at this time in this place. And so you have work to do. Then finally, and I think this is the main point, the necessity of compassion. I mean, we see the heart of Christ. He is the compassionate king. And so, so we, we, want to, we want to apply this both as his disciples and his representatives. So to convict us and say, Lord, where are we lacking compassion for those around us? So that's one way, the heart of Christ as, as those who are extensions of his ministry, his hands and feet, we are to be compassionate but we can't forget the heart of Christ as his disciples who have been recipients of his compassion. We have received compassion. Christ is patient with you. He has been and he will be. He is. He's compassionate. And so we can go, labor, continually repenting, continually asking him to help us. But he is compassion. That compassion is not just on those out there. It is on those out there, but it's, on, it's in here too. And so we, we just need to reflect on the gospel that saved us. Christ's compassion has been shown in that while we are sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's our hope as, as his laborers. Let me pray and then we're going to sing in response.